course, that's an overstatement. Okay, that's that's exaggerated. But it is the case that with the miracle of Lazarus is being raised from the dead, many people believed in Jesus and who he said he was, that he had come from the Father. Um, so they really now interesting. Here's an amazing thing, and this is what we're going to get into this morning. When you or I read the statement, all men believe in him, we definitely are excited about that. Or, you know, if we're if we're on our game, we are we, we look at that and we say, that's what we want. We want all men and women to believe in Jesus Christ. But that's not the reaction that I think of it, that the religious leaders, the so-called experts in the Old Testament, the so-called, by the way, they were anything but, we're gonna, that's going to be our main focus this, this morning, but the ones in which the people went to for all of their religious questions, they went, they, they went exactly the other way, meaning, no, we're not rejoicing, we're not welcoming our Messiah, we're not realizing that all the things that this man said was true and were true and about himself and all the things that John the Baptist said about him were true and we're going to have a party. <laughs> Hardly. And we're going to look this morning at why it was. How can this be? How can it be that on the one hand, you have all these common everyday people just objectively witnessing and listening and coming to believe that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is, the common everyday people, Jewish people. And, on, and then the leaders go the other direction. The, the leaders reject him entirely. And they wanted to put a stop right now to this movement that they saw. And, uh, and we're going to see what they were, who they were really concerned about this morning in a moment. Okay, so let's look again at verse 47 as we continue. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. By the way, this was the power source of local government. Of course, the Romans ran the whole show, but they gave some autonomy, some authority to govern to this group of people, the chief priests particularly. Um, the chief priests and Pharisees were the ones that would get together and make major decisions on behalf of the people. So they were convening a council. Now, one would think that the, that they would they would understand their function and their role and, and, and recognize the authority that came ultimately from the Lord and do what's best for the people. But that is not at all what was on their hearts that day. Notice again, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Another name for this council was Sanhedrin. You might hear that word from time to time or have heard it. And when they were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place, the men in that room and our nation. Who are they concerned with? How did they see the, the, the very people in the very city of Jerusalem? They, they saw it not in God's terms, but in what it, what it could do for them. Not, so, by the way, that's the essence, okay, of, of corrupt religion. It's also the essence of corrupt government. When, when leaders stop thinking about God and, and his interests or the people and their spiritual well-being or practical well-being in the case of government, and start thinking only about themselves and what they can get out of it. 
But it's really interesting. If, if notice in verse 47, something else. The first thing they said after talking about their frustration, what are we doing, is what? For this man is performing many signs. They, and we saw this back in chapter 9 when we were looking at the healing of the man born blind. They never denied. <laughs> they never denied the miracles because they couldn't. There's too many witnesses. And, it, and, and they were too smart to try to, to try to tell people that, well, you know, it was it was an optical illusion. I mean, the people saw it and they heard the reports from the people and they knew it was genuine. So they recognize and they, and they acknowledge here. Yes, he is performing miracles. And again, at this point in time, especially after the latest miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, it would have been pointless to identify that fact by now. Too many people have witnessed and heard and believed in Jesus on the basis of it. But what was their only concern? What was their first and only concern? It was for their own personal interests. You see, even though they had witnessed miracles, well, they, they witnessed some, they actually heard of most, uh, even though they realized that, okay, they still, they pushed that away. Okay, they kind of blocked that out of their minds. Why? Because they were only concerned about their own personal interest in anything, even a miracle, even a clear sign that the Messiah had come was secondary and unimportant. And in fact, if it's challenging their personal interests, it's something to be taken away, to stopped, to invalidate. That Why? Again, selfishness, personal interest, their power. Was, was was highest on their list of priorities, their authority and keeping it, their perks, the respect they had among the people. That was the only thing they were concerned about. They weren't concerned about Judaism, the religion. They weren't concerned about God and his interests, right? They weren't concerned about the fact that 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 for thousands of years, the scriptures had predicted that this one would come one day. No, none of that even though that, of course, is in the absolute best interest of the people and is totally according to the plan of God. All of that was just not even in their, their ability to bring in to make any decisions at all. Again, notice the emphasis on our. By the way, it, in the Greek, it's emphasized too, and I won't get into this too much, but basically it's moved first in, 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 in the word our in the Hebrew, I mean, the Greek, okay, emphasize our place, our nation. It was all about them. Now, speaking of authority and speaking of the respect for authority, they did live in fear of authority. But the only authority they lived in fear of was the one that could take away their, their, their power and their perks. And that, of course, is the Roman government. I want you to think about that. Their reaction <laughs> was that they have to stop this miracle worker, Jesus Christ. And the reason is be, not because the Lord is being, the Lord's interest not being met, but only because their own place in, in, in their own people. Not a word about the Lord's interests here. They're convening a council. It's an official body, a Jewish body. One would think that the first thing they would do would be to consult the scriptures. What's God's interest in this? 
What do the prophets have to say about this? No, not one word about that. When they talk about, you know, our place here is is uh, symbolically or more than that, but it's talking about Jerusalem, the city. But they didn't look at that in terms of the dwelling place of the Lord, the Lord's city. No, it was theirs. It was theirs to lose. Same thing with the people, not the Lord's chosen people, the flock that they have been given the privilege of shepherding. No, our people, not the Lord's. <coughs> and this is really unfortunate. Well, the fact is that the chief priests and the Pharisees should have been less concerned about the Romans. That's all that they were concerned about. What would the Romans do? Okay, not they should have been less concerned about the Romans and much more concerned about the Lord. Verse 48 again, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. And we let him go on. If we don't stop him, if we don't, if we don't have him put to death, then all men will believe in him. And what do they, what do they think was going to happen? If they didn't act, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they saying? They're saying if they continue to welcome the Messiah, then the Romans would come and take away our place and our nation. But here's the irony. Because because the fact is that the, the council ultimately got what they wanted. They ultimately arrested Jesus and they condemned him to die. And he did not perform any public signs Obviously, after that, except for the greatest of all, which would be his resurrection from the dead. But that was clearly something they hadn't anticipated. But in any event, they're saying we got to stop him. If we do stop him, then that that will prevent the Romans from coming and taking away our city and, and taking away our people. But you know what? The council, even though they ultimately intervened, the Romans came anyway. The Romans came anyway. They, demol- they would demolish Jerusalem not many years from this event. They would break the nation apart into a thousand pieces and scatter the people around the world. And you know something? This is exactly what Daniel predicted almost a, seven, five, six hundred years earlier, 550. Please turn to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. By the way. This is what they should have been doing in that council, you know. They should have been going to the scriptures. They should have especially gone to the prophets. Why? Because you have the original five books of the Bible, okay, the Torah, okay, what Moses wrote. And then you have the history of Israel, all right, after that, okay. And then you have the prophecy. See, see, what happened was the, the, the nation went astray right, again and again and again. We're studying the prophet Isaiah, and we see that most of what he's dealing with, okay, is the is the betrayal of Israel, okay, to his to the, away from their God, the mistakes they made, the evil of their leaders. Well, the Lord sent prophets to address that. Now they were unsuccessful for the most part, but that doesn't matter. The Lord still had His messengers go to the people, especially like Isaiah, go to the leaders of the people and warn them. Tell them what was going to happen. Well, Daniel was one of those prophets. And had they listened to, if they'd gone to the scriptures and seen what Daniel had written, they would have understood that, well, we'll see. They would have understood that there's things that are going to happen related to the Messiah's coming. 
Okay. And so they would understand that the Romans would be involved at some point and they would know what the Romans were going to do. And they would realize that there was nothing that they, they could intervene all they wanted, but, but the Lord is going to have his plan implemented. Look at Daniel chapter nine, verse 26. Daniel nine twenty six. Then after the 62 weeks, by the way, that's 62 times seven years. Okay. After Daniel wrote, Daniel's writing at the end of the exile of Babylon. He's going to talk about a decree that would soon be issued that would, that would be rebuilding Jerusalem. Okay. And, and at that point, the clock starts ticking, the prophetic clock. Okay. And it turns out that. <laughs> that that prophetic clock was exactly on target in terms of when the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come to the Jewish people and, by the way, enter the great city and be presented as the king, as Messiah. We're going to see that in the next chapter, chapter 12. But then he he talks about what's going to happen. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah, notice, will be cut off and have nothing. Now, in light of where we are in John now, what would be the immediate cause of the Messiah being cut off? It would be exactly the thing, the decisions that are being made in this council. It would be the leadership that would do that. The leadership, they thought by doing that, they would prevent the Romans from coming. But what actually will happen? What, what did Daniel tell them would happen if they only had eyes to see and ears to hear? Notice, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come, by the way, that's the Roman people. That's the Roman armies. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. In other words, the very thing that they thought they would preserve by having Jesus arrested and killed would actually lead to the fact that that city would be destroyed anyway, or even because of what those leaders did and the sanctuary the temple and its end will come with a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined how ironic the council acted so that that the romans wouldn't come and take away their place and their nation and yet it happened anyway and in fact it happened because of what the what the leadership did <clears throat> the Pharisees and the elders uh, yeah, 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 and the chief priests did to Jesus. So clearly the, the chief priests and Pharisees had no interest in what the prophets had to say here. Again, what Daniel talks about here actually came to pass. It happened when the Romans, the Roman armies leveled Jerusalem in 70 AD. And um, that too, by the way, this event also is described prophetically once again in the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to see this. I want you to see this. Please turn to Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. See, see Jesus, in addition to being the Messiah, the Savior, the, 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 our, our great high priest and, and one day the king, when he comes back, was also a prophet. 
Solomon was a prophet. He was a, he was a genuine prophet, the greatest prophet, and he was sent by the Father also. So he would he would he would revisit what Daniel had said and talk about it in a lot more specific detail. Look at Luke chapter 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, those are the same armies that Daniel talked about, that the people of the prince who is to come, then recognize that her, Jerusalem's desolation is near. <laughs> then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Get out of there. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country, the surrounding Judean countryside, must not enter the city because these are days of vengeance. So that all things, notice, which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. There will be great distress upon the land and wrath to his people. This is not, by the way, the tribulation period. It's very different from the tribulation period. We'll see that in a minute. Notice that the focus isn't on the whole world, which is what the tribulation is all about, but just the land and the people, which, by the way, is exactly the same thing that the chief priests and Pharisees thought they were going to preserve by putting, putting away Jesus, right? The land and the people. But no, there will be great distress upon the land, wrath to this people. And then verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword, and it notice this, which makes it clear it's talking about not talking about the great tribulation, but there's something that would happen before that. And in fact, would happen less than 40 years after Jesus made the prophecy. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive into all the nations. That didn't happen when Jesus came back, did it? The tribulation period is when all the armies of the world descend on Jerusalem and the armies are defeated. And the, and the city of Jerusalem is saved and the people far from being being led captive into all the nations, were brought back victoriously. So this is not the tribulation. This is not this is not the Battle of Armageddon. This is the Romans coming in 70 AD. Again, verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We are living probably in the last days of the times of the Gentiles now. And the day will soon come when the Lord Jesus will come back. And then the peoples from all the Jews from all over the world will then be, will be gathered up by their shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom will be established. Okay. But, but at this point, okay, from, from some 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem until this very day, okay, this has not happened. And think of it, think of it. Who's to blame for all of this? The, the answer is the religious leaders from the time that Jesus was alive. <laughs> and that, again, the, 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 you can capture it all in this one council that John, John talks about this morning, that we've seen this morning in chapter 11. That was the decisive moment when they decided that they were far from going to welcome, from welcoming the Messiah and recognizing the signs in their own scriptures, overwhelming evidence, not only in those scriptures, but in the life of Jesus. We're going to see in a minute, we're going to go to chapter five of the Gospel of John, where, where we saw in, in great detail all the witnesses. Okay, And that's, these are just the ones that John talks about. All the witnesses to the fact that Jesus is sent by God as the Messiah and the Savior. The religious leaders, none of that. Therefore, they were blamed for all of the destruction that would come. 
And Jesus makes this clear in another passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's go to Matthew this morning, chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 34. Little did they know, little did Caiaphas and the rest of the priests and the Pharisees know that that fateful decision that they were making would lead to the fall and destruction of their place and their people. Matthew chapter 23, verse 34. He's speaking. In fact, this is where the, the, the eightfold curse that Jesus issues to the, to the leaders, the scribes and Pharisees here. Okay, and he says this as well. Matthew 23, 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall notice upon you who the scribes and Pharisees here, the religious leaders of the Jewish people upon you may fall the guilt of, notice this statement, all the righteous blood shed on earth. Wow. I can't, <coughs> there, I don't think there's any statement in the Bible that is all encompassing in its damnation of, of any men than that. Jesus said to the religious leaders that were in his day that upon them, the guilt of all the righteous blood, righteous blood, Okay, that's of believers, okay, shit on earth. And he goes all the way back to Abel on this. Now, why would he say something like this? The reason is, is that from, from the very beginning, the people of people of God were persecuted, okay, ultimately by the forces of Satan, okay, in order to prevent the Messiah from coming. Right? Why was Abel slain? Well, of course, when Adam and the woman that had their first children then they would clearly be the ones, the, the line of which at the time they thought would come through them and lead to the Messiah. I mean, now they, the people may not have known that at the time. Cain definitely probably didn't know that. But, you know, Satan did. Okay. So all the way from the beginning, the blood of the righteous people um, was shed. And the goal of, of the enemies, the uh, kingdom of darkness, was to prevent Jesus from coming. Now, what happened? Jesus came, and the ones who thought that they were protecting the people by putting Jesus to death were the ones who actually brought upon themselves the greatest condemnation of all, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, notice, all these things will come upon this generation. So when the Romans armies came and leveled Jerusalem in 70 AD, who's to blame? The religious leaders at the time of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. How to how do you explain that? How do you how could these leaders have been so wrong, so blind, so unaware of what they were doing? Well, Jesus told them and he told them earlier in the Gospel of John, and let's go now to see what Jesus had told them earlier. Jesus, the great prophet, as well as the priest and the Son of God, told them about the witnesses that they had been given that they were rejecting. 
It's not God's fault. You know, a lot of people want to say, well, God, God never let me know. Not his fault. <laughs> you know, today the Lord is still sending out his messages. What's happening? Well, a lot, a lot of people are rejecting them. Some, many are being persecuted around the world. Right. So, so it's not as if God didn't do his job. Not as if they didn't have the opportunity. It's that they rejected the message, the messengers, the witnesses. Look at verse 36 of John chapter 5. But the testimony which I have, see, testimony, witnesses, evidence, the Lord God speaking through people and through events. But the testimony which I have, of course, he's talking about about himself, that the father sent him as his son, is greater than the testimony of John the Baptist. He was a great prophet. And yet the testimony that, that Jesus is going to talk about here is even greater than the testimony of John. For the works, notice what's first. The works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me, that the Father has sent me. In other words, his miracles, well, not the only evidence of who he was, definitely was was legitimate grounds for somebody to see and, and and realize that this had to come from God and realize, therefore, this was a spokesperson from God. Jesus was also. And yet, what was he saying? He was saying that I am the one. I am the son of God. I am the I am the the, the one who is going to inherit the kingdom. I'm the I am the one who is going to be the lamb of God. Right. So his testimony is greater. And yet, one of the things that the people were to see and and be a, be a motivation to believe in him was the works that he did. Now, this, of course, isn't limited to the miracles, but that's a major feature of what John is presenting in the gospel. And it's something that Jesus would say. He would say later on to the leaders, listen, if you don't believe in my words, at the very least, believe in my works. Believe in the miracles that I have performed. The leaders saw them recognize them, call them signs, and they still rejected him. Not God's fault. Verse 30, no, well, notice, the very works that I do testify about me, what? That the Father has sent me. This was the key thing that the Lord was trying to get through their thick skulls. You see, that was, when he presented his credentials, he didn't talk about his own accomplishments. He didn't talk about his greatness. He talked about one thing. I have been sent by the Father. I am here to do his will. When you see me, you see the Father. Verse 37, guess what? The Father who sent me, Jesus said, has testified of me. See, that's much greater testimony than anything John could give. Why? Because it's God the Father, the Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, right? It's God testified of Jesus. But notice the next statement. Here's the here's the condemning part. Here's the explanation of how the leaders could have been so wrong. Notice, you <coughs> have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. What's the problem here? Because they, they, they didn't recognize that there were signs that's not the problem they they didn't they didn't see the effect that Jesus had on other people no that's not the problem 
The problem was that they didn't have his word abiding in them. They didn't have his word abiding in them. You see, that's a fatal mistake, especially for, for religious leaders is not to even have the word of God abiding in them. And there's no excuse for that. No excuse for them. And by the way, even though it was, it's a, it's a different situation that we're in today, there's really no excuse for us either, especially where we're in a situation in a country where the word of God is freely preached. Maybe it's not praised as much as one, as much as it should be. I thought maybe it's not, but at least it's preached. People have access to the word of God. People have choices and people, people can say to themselves, for example, that, you know what? And I've heard people say this. There's 20 churches in, 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 around from five miles around. But yet I should be going to the one that is preaching God's word because that's the mission of the church. Right. The, the pillar of the truth. I need to go where the truth is being preached. And, and in our country and in fact, more and more around the world. Right. What's happening? What's happening is, is that the Lord's sending his messengers not only face to face now, but by means of technology. We have people, we have had people and continue to have people from other countries, right, that we know, okay, are able, I don't know if they're doing it, but they're able to come and hear me preach. Well, how? The miracle of technology. And so, and so, but here we are, and I know this morning we're not in ideal circumstances because we're not gathering face to face, but nevertheless, okay, we're all here listening to the word of God, that means that we are given the opportunity to have it abiding in us. And abiding in us doesn't just mean hearing it, right? It, it means to it means to have believe it, most importantly, and to live by it, and, and to have it dwell in us richly, and to have a commitment to to hearing the word of God regularly, not once a week. Okay, at the very end, I'm going to bring that point back into the focus. But that was their problem. The reason they rejected Jesus, the reason why they didn't rejoice that the people were believing him is because they didn't have the word of God abiding in them. They didn't have their compass, the one guidepost, the one standard that they should have been using to evaluate all the evidence. You do not believe him who he sent. Verse 39, you search the scriptures. In other words, they had the scriptures, but they didn't go there for the purpose of saying, Lord, what are you saying to me? See, that's not the purpose. Well, they would talk about the law of Moses. They would talk about being proud disciples of Moses, but they wouldn't pay any attention to what Moses had to say. They were going in for their own purposes. When they quoted the law <clears throat> many times in the presence of Jesus, it was to trick him. It was to catch him. And they twisted the law. They twisted the Sabbath and so forth. They twisted um, what, what the Lord said about, about, for example, those who are caught in a trespass, right? So they didn't have his word abiding. You search the scriptures. Yeah, you have access to them. But you, because you think that in them you have eternal life. However, here's the most important part of the scriptures that they refuse to see. It is these scriptures that testify about me, Jesus Christ, the one whom God sent. You are unwilling, unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They prided themselves also on being disciples of Moses. Yet, look at verse 46. He brings up Moses. He's saying, you know who another witness is here? It's the one you talk about. He's telling them. He says, the one you're so proud of being a disciple of. The one that you think you're the arbiters and protectors of the legacy of. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Hmm. By the way, that's a that is a clear statement of fact. 
if they had believed Moses, okay, if they had believed what was in the book of Genesis, the promised Savior, the fact that it would go through the line of Judah, for example, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote about me. Wow. Wow. So in other words, think about the accumulated evidence that was available to these chief priests and Pharisees, including the very texts of what Moses wrote. And they discarded all of it. They had no interest in what it really had to say. Right. He wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They didn't believe Moses either. So, of course, they're going to be dead wrong. Of course, on the day in which they should have rejoiced, instead, they're, they're, they're in fear of a, of a, of a, of a human, um, a fleshly empire rather than the living God. And the fact is that they rejected every one of the witnesses that God sent. Every one of them. All of them were attesting to a simple fact that Jesus is the son of God, and they rejected each and every one of them. I did an exercise that you, of course, can do yourselves um, if you if you if you care to. And that is to go. I went through the, the statements and liberations of the chief priests and Pharisees in the Gospel of John. There aren't that many of them. You know, especially in, in John nine, when when they were deliberating over the significance of the man born blind, being given his sight by Jesus. You look through that. Look through that. <laughs> the passage we're reading this morning. You can also go forward to John chapter 12 and see them deliberating one more time. Now, these are the official deliberations of the religious leaders of the people. And if you ask a question, ask this question, if you, if you how do they evaluate the claims of Jesus? What was their standard of measure? Quite simply, the, the key question here is this. Were their deliberations guided by what the scriptures had to say? Did they say, for example, what did Moses say about the coming Messiah? What did Isaiah say about it? What did Daniel say about it? Did they, were they humble and just said, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to trust our eyes. We're not going to take our own subjective interests here because that's clearly not our role as the leader, religious leaders of the people. We're going to do what we're supposed to do and be guided by what the scriptures had to say. Trust me, they didn't do that. No, they had other considerations that were more important to them than what the scriptures had to say. Why? Because they didn't even have the word of God abiding in their heart. And they didn't really believe what Moses had to say anyway. No, they thought about a consideration that was more expedient to them than God's word. That's the answer. And that's the problem. Another time Jesus spoke a parable to, this very, to the chief priests and the elders. It's the parable of the landowner and his vineyard. And I'd like you to turn to that passage now. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Matthew 21, verse 33. <clears throat> okay. Jesus said to them, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. By the way, you who have been with us from the beginning on the, on the our study of Isaiah, 
might recognize that passage way back. But it's Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Jesus quoted scripture, their scriptures. Interesting. Again, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. This is the Lord, of course. Lord was speaking in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 about his vineyard. His vineyard was the nation of Israel. He planted that vineyard expecting it to bear fruit. But of course, he rented it out to vine growers. What's that? Well, those are the people he left the vineyard in the care of until his son would come, right? Well, who was, who was the, who the vine growers? The religious leaders. In this case, in context, the chief priests and elders. Verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. This is the prophets. These are the prophets. He sent them to receive his produce. What happens? Did the did the vine growers say, oh, this is a representative of, of, the, of the one who planted this vineyard, the landowner? No. What did they do? The vine growers, verse 35, took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. They stoned the prophets. They killed the prophets. Verse 36. So the landowner again sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. They did the same thing to them. Verse 37. But afterward, he sent his son to them. Now, who's his son? Well, who's the vine? Who's the landowner? If the landowner is God, then his son is God, the son, Jesus Christ. But when the vine grows, well, verse 37 again. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, notice, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Let us take advantage of this situation now and let us kill him and seize his inheritance. He's not going to be the king. We're going to be the, we're going to be the leaders here. Again, think of where we are in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Isn't this exactly what happened when the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council? (laughs) This is the heir. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Verse 39, they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Jesus, Jesus died outside the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said, they said, these are the chief priests. They said, well, even we know what's going to happen. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. You see, they know what happens in the natural realm, right? They could, they could read that, but they couldn't read the, the, the times that they were in in terms of what the prophets had to say. So Jesus is going to fill them in. Jesus said to them, did you ever read in the scriptures? I love this. Because remember, what's their whole problem? They don't have the word of God abiding in them. (laughs) So he's going to be like, did you ever read in the scriptures? You know, are you even doing your job? What? The sun, the stone, which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Did you ever read in the scriptures? I bet you haven't. 
That's what he, that's of course the, 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 the sub message here. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came from the mouth from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118 here. That's what he's doing. Okay. And of course, you can't miss it at this point. What's he talking about? Well, if the builders reject the cornerstone, that's the same thing as the vine grower is killing the, the sun, right? He's talking about the, them. He's talking about the, the chief priests, the, the leaders, the religious leaders of the people. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And and for any of those who still didn't get the point, he then says it directly. Verse 43, therefore, I, Jesus, the son, the, the, one, the one who is going to inherit all of this, I say to you, chief priests and elders, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone, talking about himself, will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, the stone comes in right over, buries them, will scatter them like dust. He's again predicting what's going to happen to them. And then they find me, of course, verse 45. They can't miss that. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Well, today we've had the misfortune of having to focus on these chief priests and Pharisees. You just have to wonder and shake your head about these guys. How could they have been so off the mark? How could they ignore all the evidence that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, God's only son? Especially when, you know, the the same Gospel of John records over and over again the fact that common everyday people, it wasn't their responsibility to guide the nation in the things of the Lord, right? They were just living their lives you know, taking what they heard in the synagogues and trying to live their life accordingly, having great hope because they had heard the prophets read. We know that because when Jesus went into a synagogue in Nazareth, he read from the book of Isaiah. So that, you know, the synagogues were the place where the common people went and heard the word of God. So those same people see the same evidence that the chief priests and the Pharisees saw. Probably not as much, right? Because they were the, you know, again, we've seen this in chapter 9 with the, with the healing of the man born blind. We see it here in chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. Every time one of these events happened, some people went to the chief priests and the Pharisees to let them know what happened. So they had the full scope of the evidence in front of them. Common everyday people might have seen one of the miracles. But yet on that basis, that same evidence that the leaders had, they believed in Jesus. People like the fishermen from Galilee in chapter one of the Gospel of John. You have Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and Peter even based on what one witness. And that's that's John, the, the, the John the Baptist recognized that he was a legitimate spokesperson from God. And therefore, they recognized who Jesus was and they believed in him. Common fishermen. You have a woman in chapter four from Samaria. She's not even a Jew. It's interesting because the Samaritans only recognize, this is some, so amazing, they only recognize the first five books of the Bible. Did you know that? In other words, they too only relied on Moses, right? Just like Jesus said, if you leaders believed in Moses, you would have believed in me. Well, here's proof. 
Here's a common Samaritan woman, not even a Jew, a Samaritan whose people only only recognized the first five books written by Moses, and she believed. As all the men in that city of Sychar did as well. Common everyday people. Here, the people, the Jews would see this as the scum of the earth, the dogs. But they heard enough of the word of God, but they believed it and they recognized Jesus when he came. That man who was blind from birth in chapter 9, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they were, of course, already believers even before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowd of mourners, everyday people from Jerusalem had come to be at Mary's side in mourning the loss of her brother. They believed on the basis of, what, of the evidence of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And then, then we had seen it back in chapter 10 at the end that there were some simple people that lived by the Jordan River and they had seen John's ministry. And on that basis alone, when Jesus came back, they said, this is the one that John was talking about. Common everyday people saw the same evidence that the religious leaders saw. And they, the common people believe in Jesus. The religious leaders wanted to kill him. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And of course, that's right out of the Jewish scriptures in Psalm 118. What was Jesus saying when he quoted Psalm 118? What was he saying about these leaders? Why was he talking about that passage? What was he saying? Well, very simply, (coughs) they should have been looking for the cornerstone. If they had taken to heart Passages like Psalm 118, right? They would have been looking for the Messiah when he came. They would have been looking for the cornerstone. They would have been looking for the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They would have been looking for the Messiah that Daniel predicted to the the very day. They would have been looking for him if the word of God had abided in them. But of course, it wasn't. They rejected what their very own scriptures had to say about him. Okay, that's enough of them. As we as we close today, now we're gonna we're gonna turn our attention to our own spiritual lives. Now we are not leaders of the nation of Israel. Most of us, if not all of us, this morning are believers in Jesus Christ. So certainly our situation, we are, of course, if we're believers in Christ, we are in union with Christ and we're adopted sons and daughters of God, the Father, and we have the Holy Spirit dwell in our hearts and we have the capability of, but here's the thing, we have the capability of understanding scriptures that weren't even, weren't available to the Old Testament people. So now the issue for us isn't salvation, unless, of course, you haven't yet believed in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you haven't, the gospel of John is for you, first and foremost. It answers the question, who is this Jesus? And the answer is that Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived in the first century AD. He went to the cross and died for your sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead by God, the Father, never to die again. He was He was. He was. Crucified and buried for sinners. He was raised from the dead for saints. And whoever believes in Jesus Christ will never perish, but have eternal life and will be a saint also. This Jesus. But people who have believed in him, and again, I, I, 
I, it's none of my business, but I expect them. Almost everybody, if not everybody with us this morning has. Well, what's our job? What's it, what's our calling? What's Why are we here? And I submit to you that it's the same issue. Very different conditions, very different consequences. But at the same time, it's the same issue. Do we have the word of God abiding richly in our hearts? You know, because that's going to be the only way that we're going to continue to grow. It's the way in which we're going to come to know Jesus, and in, 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 of course, greater, much greater, greater um, capacity and the, the, the breadth and depth of who He is and the love that He has for us. Nevertheless, that's our that's what we're that's our destiny on this earth. So, what are we supposed to do? Look at uh, Ephesians chapter two. Excuse me. Verse 19. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. See, because we too have a cornerstone. Right? And, and that's the religious leaders fail. They didn't look for the cornerstone. Okay, but we also have the same cornerstone. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you, now he's talking, of course, to believers here, Gentile believers, right, primarily. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. This is who you are if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You are a fellow citizen with all the saints and are of God's household. Of course, everybody who believes Christ adopted by God, the father, member of his household, child of God. But notice verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. See, the very people that that the chief priests and Pharisees persecuted, well, those are the ones upon whom the foundation of their teaching, we have been built. That's the scriptures. For us, it's, it's, it's particularly <coughs> the New Testament epistles of Paul. But the whole realm of the word of God, the whole realm of the teaching, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ noticed, though, Christ Jesus himself being what? The cornerstone. He's the cornerstone for us, just like he was the cornerstone for Israel. In whom we are in Christ, the whole building. So all the believers, this is the body of Christ being fitted together, fitted together. That's the work of the Holy Spirit and the love of God, putting us closer and closer in unity. Being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's the body of Christ. That's you're a member of, of this household, this body, in whom, again, you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. See, that's our destiny. And yet, what is it all built on? The cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be our focus. He is the one. And that's the simple lesson that I want you to take away from today's message. Very simple Keep your eyes on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He, he is the one on, on, on whom everything depends. Everything's being built. All of, all of what we're here to become, who we already have been made to be, and now we are to live out accordingly. It's all on the basis of the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's this morning make sure we do what the chief priests and the Pharisees failed to do. And what's that? Well, it's very simple, very simple, all right? Like Job's, 
What we are to do each and every day of our lives is to treasure the words of God. And and as Jesus said himself, and we're going to see in a minute, we ought to treasure the words of God as more necessary than even our daily food. We ought to esteem the word of God that much. (coughs) We are to have it dwell richly in our hearts. How? By treasuring the words of God, recognizing that we need them, recognizing that it's only by those the truths in the word of God and having them over and over again heard and believed and put to use and all of that, that we are to, we can grow. That's what we're, that's what we're to do. You know, not because if we don't do it, the our whole, well, not because if we don't, we're not religious leaders, right? Without the same stakes involved, but in a sense, even more so because it's on the, you know, the, the church is the pillar of the truth of God. The church is the vehicle that the, that the Lord is using to broadcast who he is and his glory and all of that, you know? So we too have tremendous, tremendous uh, calling, responsibility. And what are we to do? We to treasure the words of God as more necessary than our daily food. Please turn to Matthew as we close this morning, Matthew chapter four. Please turn to Matthew chapter four, verse four. This is a simple lesson from today. Let's resolve to do what the chief priests and, and Pharisees failed to do. And it's their own fault, their own decisions. They weren't willing to do it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> and by the way, they weren't willing to do it because their own selfish interests were more important. They esteemed the opinions of men more than the opinions, more than the viewpoint of God, the approval of men, more important than the approval of God. Don't make that mistake either. <laughs> that's just saying, by the way, that's saying when you do that, you're not going to treasure the words of God, right? You're going to treasure the, the compliments of other people. Matthew 4, 4, but he answered, Jesus said, he's speaking to the devil here, by the way, it is written. It's quoting from Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Live on, right? Not just kind of hear a good sermon, right? But to actually live every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That is our very life. Like like, like Paul said, Christ is my life. And, I, and when, when I die, I'm going to see him again. Right? Face to face. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And look to John chapter 8. Follow it up now in the Gospel of John, our Gospel. John chapter 8, verse 31. <laughs> John eight thirty-one. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed them, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you what continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Well, that's our calling as well. Um, Notice, by the way, here. Okay, he doesn't say if you continue, the word continue now, you, then you are truly believers, right? That's the lie of lordship salvation. No, he's saying you're disciples of mine. You no, know, we're, we're something way beyond, by the way, 
disciples. Okay, the, the disciples were people that followed him when he was here. Okay, and they had they were um, primarily looking forward to the kingdom. We're saints. We're the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Okay, and yet we're called to do the same thing, but for a much higher purpose. If you continue in my word, continue in my word, we too will know the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the truth. So for us, we'll know Jesus better. And it's the truths of the word of God that that not, not so much make us free here because we have been we have been made free. Right. But but we are to keep our freedom. Right. And how do we do that? By loving one another. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. But do not do not use your freedom for selfish purposes, but rather to build up and edify one another. So as as we leave now, what do we take away? Very simple, very simple, but really profound. If you think about it, let us this morning press on. Simply pre- I know that we're facing a lot of things. I know that people have tremendous, tremendous challenges and suffering and unprecedented uh, things that are impinging and pressing us, pressing on us. We have we have so many things that are designed to prevent us from doing this simple thing. Pressing on to know the truth. Well, let's do it anyway. Let's press on to know the truth. And what does that really mean? Let's come to know Jesus Christ even better than we know him now. Let's turn to Philippians. This will be our last passage. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. We can get some inspiration as we close from the Apostle Paul. (coughs) Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, Paul writes, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count count all my fame as nothing in view of the surpassing value of knowing, just knowing who he is, Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count any of my self-interest. I count any of what the world has to give me, right? I, I count any of my privileges as nothing, loss, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I, I consider the high opinions of others to be lost, to be less than nothing, in view of the, in fact, a distraction, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I, Paul, have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, garbage, so that I may gain Christ. Notice his single-minded focus. And may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. This is the great, great truth, right? Justification by faith in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. It's not what I do. But that which is through faith in Christ. You see, you see when we hear the word of God, Okay, and we have it dwelling in our hearts, and then we go out into the world and we face adversity, we face difficulty. What's going to get us through? What's going to get us through is to realize that, that 
without Christ, we can't do anything anyway. And that and that it's only by means of the power of the spirit and the power of the word of God. And the fact that our job now is to simply believe the word of God. Believe it, right? The righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. And the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. <coughs> that I may know him. Here's what, here's what we're called to do. I may know him, Christ. I may know the power, the power that's available to us in his resurrection as saints. We have the power of the resurrection available and the fellowship of his sufferings. We are going to suffer and it's, and it's going to be something that we understand to be something that the Lord has called us to do in fellowship. All right. Being conformed to his death. Okay. To understand the significance of his death for us that when he died, we died. To understand that, to understand that we can do nothing without him, to understand that our old man was crucified with him, that we've died to sin, that we've died to the law, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let that be our focus and our motivation as we leave today. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to gather together by Skype this morning to hear your word. Thank you, Father, that you have done so much for us in terms of saving us through your son, when we were dead, you made us alive on the basis of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that as we live today, we ought to live as those who have been given the victory, live on, live on a level higher than the everyday common way of living. And that you've given us the power to do that in your word and in the spirit. And, and, and you've given us the tremendous privilege of being able to come to know your son better and better and better and better. Help us take advantage of that, Father. And also, again, this morning, Father, we just don't want to leave without bringing to your um, attention that you don't know it, but that (coughs) we ask you, Father, this morning, we ask you to please watch over and take care of all the saints. We know that so many of them are going through very difficult things at this time, Father, and we just put it, we trust in you and your promises and your word. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. All right, Peter. My pleasure. Amen. Amen, everybody. Have a great day, and uh, we'll see you on Thursday. Those of you who are able to make it for Bible study on Thursday in person and on Skype, God willing.